Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister here and moderator of these forums. Our role in presenting these forums six to eight times a year to all comers of a Thursday noon in this sanctuary or over the air is to look at key issues from an ethical perspective and that with the help of a knowing and profoundly concerned guest voice. What could be more or alarming or disquieting from an ethical perspective than the fact that there is a forgotten half in our society? Who constitutes the forgotten half? They are the 20 million non-college-bound 16 to 24-year-olds in our society. In non-statistical terms, they are the young people who build our homes, drive our buses, repair our automobiles, fix our televisions, maintain and serve our offices, schools, hospitals, and keep the production lines of our mills and factories moving. To a great extent, they determine how well the American family, economy, and democracy function. They are also the thousands of young men and women who aspire to work productively but never quite make it to that kind of employment. For these members of the forgotten half, their lives as adults start in the economic limbo of unemployment, part-time jobs, and poverty wages. Many of them never break free. What I've just shared with you comes directly from a document entitled The Forgotten Half, Pathways to Success for America's Youth and Young Families, a product of the William T. Grant Foundation Commission on Work, Family, and Citizenship. That commission was headed by Dr. Harold Howe II, today's Town Hall Forum speaker, today's concerned and informed guest voice. Dr. Howe has earned degrees from Yale and Columbia and at least half a dozen honorary degrees from well-known colleges and universities. He has worked and served as a high school history teacher, a junior and senior high school principal, a superintendent of schools in Scarsdale, New York. He was appointed U.S. Commissioner of Education by President Lyndon Johnson and served from 1965 to 68. He held key educational roles with the Ford Foundation from 71 to 81. He was the Francis Keppel Senior Lecturer, Harvard Graduate School of Education from 82 to 89, and is ongoingly related there as a Senior Lecturer on Educational Policy and Administration Emeritus. Through his entire career, up to and including today, Dr. Howe has evidenced keen commitment to those who are underserved by the current system. To quote him directly, I was always interested in trying to make things better for the people on the bottom of the pile. His topic today is Strategic New Thinking for Children, Youth, and Families. Welcome, Dr. Harold Howe. We're glad you're here. Thank you very much. 
Don, I thank you very much for that warm welcome. Um, I hope you won't be offended if I correct just one thing about it. Um, uh, I uh, am not legitimately a doctor. Um, I have a nickname of Doc, which I've had since the age of 12, and which I much enjoy using because it makes people think I have a doctorate, but I don't. Uh, I was so. honoring all those honorary degrees. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as you could imply from this um, introduction, uh, I'm a semi-retired educator. Uh, and in the last few years, I've been spending my time uh, trying to look at the situation of youth in America. And in the course of doing that, I have really changed. Um, I used to think of young people, both children and youth, in terms of schools. And I've begun to think about them instead in terms of families, communities, and workplaces. In fact, um, the main case I'm going to make today in addressing you is that families, communities, and workplaces are educational institutions of great import and that we're not giving them enough attention. Now, uh, to begin with, let me outline for you the points I hope to make in uh, sort of outline fashion and then uh, go back and talk about them. What I want to do is to argue five points. One is that we are not viewing, we are not giving adequate attention to the growth of poverty in the United States and its effect among our young people. Second point, the education reform movement in the United States is narrowly focused on schooling and neglects family and, and communities and their educational potential. Thirdly, we have become so enamored of standardized test scores that we neglect some very significant strengths for improving schools. Fourth, our lack of political will prevents us from fully using strategies we know which will work for kids and young people and which need to be better used. And finally, the way we think about kids, particularly teenagers, has much to do with how they behave. And I'll hope to discover what that means for you when I get to that final point. Let me go back then to the first of these points and talk about poverty among the young. First of all, some facts. Uh, going back to the early 1970s, uh, the proportion of young people, children and youth in American society who would experience poverty at some time in their lives uh, was approximately one in seven. By 1980, it was one in six. By now, 1990, it is one in five, and by the year 2000, it will be one in four. There are all sorts of reasons uh, behind that increase in the number of children experiencing poverty. Not the least of them is 
that the groups which are poor have the highest birth rates in this country. But there are also reasons which have to do with the inadequacies of the opportunity, inadequacy of the opportunities we provide for these young people. Another fact on the way the pie is divided, the, the financial pie is divided uh, in American society in terms of comparing uh, households, that is families, in the United States in terms of what the top one-fifth of families, if you would arrange all families in five groups equal in number, the top one-fifth gets about 40% of the income. Most of us here are in that group. Uh, the bottom one-fifth of people in families in the United States gets just over 5%, 5.3% of the total family income. Uh, if you look at other countries around the world for that division, particularly countries we're interested in competing with, uh, both Germany and Japan uh, are, have their uh, rewards similarly distributed, but it's interesting that both of them have much higher rewards for the bottom one-fifth. Uh, Germany, 7.7%, and Japan, 8.7%. In other words, uh, they do at least 50% more uh, for the poverty sector of their economies than we do for ours, and those figures include all the government benefits that poor people get in all of these countries, and of course, all those government benefits for poor people are much larger and more generous and better organized in Germany and Japan than they are here in the United States. Another figure. If you look at what has happened between 1979 and 1988 uh, to the income of United States families, and, and look particularly at this bottom fifth of families we've been talking about, you'll find that the bottom fifth of families in the United States over that eight or uh, nine year period uh, lost 23% of real income, not just in nominal dollars, but in real dollars, they lost 23% of their income, those people on the bottom of the pile. Whereas, if you look at the top one-fifth in the United States, uh, those people gained substantial funds uh, over those years, going up by 23% or more, depending on the age group you're talking about. So that what you have to conclude from this is that in our country, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and there are more of them. And the measures that we have to try to deter such developments of that as that are not being successful. Now, why should we talk about the poor um, when we're looking at the fortunes of children and youth? What does poverty have to do with it? What poverty has to do with it is that poverty in a family makes it very difficult for that organization to function as a family. I'll read you a brief description by a social scientist of this matter, and then I'll tell you my own description. 
The family must have sufficient emotional strength remaining after dealing with survival issues to care for and nurture its children. In practical terms, this means access to food, shelter, physical safety, and economic stability. As these resources diminish, stress increases and the outcomes in terms of the children become less acceptable. That's a fancy way to put it. I say that poverty gnaws at families. Indeed, it destroys families. It is really no coincidence that a very high proportion of young people who are entangled with drugs, delinquency, dropping out of school, irresponsible sex, and other uh, difficulties of kids are from poor families. Poor families are not very good preventive agencies uh, for th those distressing behaviors. Got my pages mixed up, excuse me. <laughs> Let me go now to um, my second point, which has to do with the effects of these poverty matters uh, on the or the relationship of these poverty matters to the school reform movement. When I look at the school reform movement, uh, I see an assumption which seems to me not at all valid. It is an assumption which says, we want to fix the schools so that they can serve all the kids so well that no matter how much we destroy them in their families and communities, the schools will be able to take care of those deficiencies and everything will be hunky-dory. I simply don't think that's possible. I think that it's quite possible that schools can do better than they do now with disadvantaged programs, with, with disadvantaged kids. I think many of the programs we have to help disadvantaged kids be more successful in school can indeed be improved in a variety of ways. But when you get right down to it, as long as we continue to produce a large proportion of kids who have been damaged by poverty, we are going to have a certain proportion of them falling through whatever safety nets we devise. And that's what we have going on now. And one of the interesting questions we confront is, are we going to try to do something about poverty in our society? or? Are we going to continue to do what we're doing now, uh, which is essentially to find a large, helpful group of propping up activities that may in some way alleviate the effects of poverty while we continue to encourage it? Um, I have to tell you, my belief is we are not going to do anything about poverty in American society, at least for some time to come. Um, we have an, act, an attitude toward uh, uh, social legislation, uh, toward spending more money on poor people, uh, toward welfare, if you will, 
um, which is in general negative. Even though we have passed through our Congress the Family Support Act of 1988, which offers real hope in this realm if it can be fully implemented with enough money, I very much doubt that that money is going to be forthcoming. So I think we are stuck um, with the kinds of measures that we now have, um, like the Head Start program and like certain health programs and like a variety of community-based endeavors to help kids stay on the right track, which um, will ameliorate the situation until the day when there's enough generosity in this society to do something about the problem of poverty. We've done it for all of us, the old, po old folks. I'm drawing Social Security. I love it. Um, but um, we haven't done it for the kids. Kids can't vote. That might be the difference. Let me go now to um, the implications of all this for the school reform movement. It seems to me that, that we have to, in some way, uh, invent some new ideas, even though we won't use our money as we should, to get at these problems. And I think we're beginning to do so. Let me define a problem area I think we're beginning to find our way into. There's an immense gap between children and youth on the one hand and adults in our society on the other, a gap created by a variety of forces we can't limit or control. They're powerful forces that exist among us and are going to remain there. Women going to work is one of them. That has changed the lives of children. The increase in single-parent families has changed the lives of children. The prevalence of TV in the home has changed the lives, the, the contacts between adults and children in major ways. The time adults spend with kids in our busy day-to-day -day business of earning enough to keep going or keep up or however we're motivated has changed the lives of children. And we therefore need to invent ways to get our kids in communities in better touch with the adult world on a more constructive basis. They don't have the time they need and want with adults who care about them. Uh, some suggestions in this realm. One thing we don't lack is a whole galaxy of relatively small scale but quite active programs run by dedicated people in most communities trying to get at the problems of, of poor children and indeed of other children who uh, would not necessarily be classified as poor uh, but who have this gap of inattention from adults that uh, affects their lives for the reasons I stated. And these agencies work in the area of recreation, they work in the area of finding jobs, they work in areas of mental health, they work in areas of uh, uh, providing various kinds of services to young people. Uh, in general, they are very ill-coordinated. In general, 
There are many people working in those agencies, very capable and dedicated and low-paid people, uh, who don't necessarily know the people in the other agencies who are working with the same kids. And to a high degree, many of them are isolated from the schools, which in turn are isolated from them. We need to build networks that work around the multiple service agencies that we have managed to create to help both children and youth so that there is more consciousness of who is falling through the, the safety net, more consciousness of who is in serious trouble, and also so that kids themselves can, can easily know and get service, and their families can, from the various people who want to help them. Uh, so I think coordination of the things we do for our young is a primary cause to uh, get out in the open. Secondly, uh, there are activities that are very much on the increase around the country in youth service and getting young people to serve their communities, which are very positive in what they do for the young and also for the communities. And we need to have more of that kind of activity, and that can be planned within a, com within a community and, and can help youngsters to have the kinds of contacts with adults that will bolster to some degree uh, the deficits they might have in their families. Thirdly, there are lots of ideas around these days about mentoring programs. Um, adults who are willing to spend time with kids on a one-to-one -one basis just to be a friend. There are lots of kids who need just a friend. And uh, I think that activity is going to grow. I think we need to learn a lot more about it. I think we need a good deal more research on it than we have. But there's enough evidence that mentoring works to make more use of it. There's some very good evidence about the role that retired people can play in becoming mentors to junior high kids, senior high kids, and giving them a companionship that is constructive. Um, incidentally, uh, one of the interesting research findings around that is that people who would be, might be thought of as good role models are not necessarily the best mentors. That is, the president of the company might think of himself as a good mentor uh, for kids because he's such a fine example of success. But it turns out that the best mentor is frequently a person who has had troubles in his or her life may have experienced poverty, may have been an alcoholic and gotten over it, and now understands the kinds of problems that kids are contending with. So our mentoring activities uh, are worth pursuing. Also, the whole business of educating young families. A whole lot of kids are having kids, but don't know how to be a family. And the the, the there are very good programs around the country. They're, they're spotty here and there. Whole states will have them. Whole states will be without them. Um, that are programs for helping young people to understand what a family is, what babies need, what they need as they grow up and mature. Uh, and that kind of activity seems to me well worth promoting. Let me jump. Uh, to a quick observation around my third point, um, the standardized tests uh, 
uh, are getting, getting us off on the wrong foot and keeping us from using some strategies that we ought to be using in our schools. I'm not taking out uh, to kill off standardized tests. I think they have some use. On the other hand, I think we use them entirely too much. And the thing that worries me the most is that in schools, uh, teachers, indeed principals, are, are arranging the work that kids do in the way that standardized tests are arranged. So they go through little exercises that are like a standardized test on mimeographed pieces of paper all day in order to be able to do the kinds of, make the kind of responses that standardized tests seek. They, that means they're kept from reading books. Uh, they are kept from engaging in discussion about what books mean. Uh, and this is literally happen, happening in thousands of classrooms. We legislated a lot of these standardized tests in the name of school reform. Well, having said that, uh, just let me say what I think is being left out from schools. There was an interesting article in the, in the local paper I read today about a school somewhere around here which had made a major effort to get parents involved. That seems to me an absolutely essential business. That's part of the process I was referring to earlier uh, of getting the community and parents involved in the school. Uh, the school that is isolated from parents uh, is a school that's missing a trick in terms of its leverage on young people. There are all kinds of ways that can be done, but it's not easy. And the old PTA won't work anymore. The parents are both working. They haven't got time for it. Some employers are beginning uh, to say, look, we will give you time off from your job if you will use it to make contact with your school and get into the affairs of the school. That makes an awful lot of sense and probably results in employees who are both grateful to the employer and, and in a way, uh, happier and more efficient because their families are, are working better. Uh, that kind of activity of, of hooking the school in to the family can make an awful lot of difference. Um, a word on the fourth point I mentioned, making use of strategies that work. We know that Head Start works. We know that Chapter 1 of the Elementary Secondary Education Act provides resources that, when well used, make kids more successful in school. We know that Job Corps works. We know that the relatively new Job Partnership Training Act is making some kids successful and has the potential to make no more. But most of us don't know that only about 25% of the kids get the eligible for it, get the Head Start program. Only about 40% of the kids el eligible for it get Chapter 1, that a very small proportion get uh, JPTA resources, and that all of these programs that have potential for helping the kids who are on the bottom of the pile are partially funded and leave a lot of youngsters out in the cold. Recently, the President of the United States has given a big boost to Head Start. Bully for him. He should have done twice as much. Uh, he brought it up to about 50%. What's the matter with the other 50% of the kids who aren't getting the program? Uh, we need a second chance education system that we haven't got. Kids dropping out of school in cities are a familiar phenomenon. You're all aware of it. 
there is not a place a kid who's dropped out from school has a right to go and that is welcoming him or her. A kid who drops out of a school and comes back to the school he dropped out of is not a popular person. Most people heaved a sigh when he left. And uh, we're glad to see him go because probably he made a certain amount of trouble before he left and took a lot of time and effort of people in the school. But we have no adequate second chance system and relatively little rights of kids for attention and time and resources to straighten out their lives when they leave school. Um, we have a much weaker system in the United States for helping kids who aren't going to college to get work than any other developed country in the world. Essentially, kids find their jobs through their families. But if families are on welfare, they don't have many contacts to help the kids find jobs. And that is a massive area uh, for attention in local communities, um, and maybe even uh, to get uh, some federal resources eventually for that kind of thing. The, the um, college counselors in high schools do a lot better service for kids than do the job-finding counselors in high schools in general. There are probably major exceptions to that rule, but in general, that is so. And finally, let me jump to the way we think about kids. We have a tendency to think about kids as problems. Uh, it, the polls show this. Uh, we found one poll in this study I've been mixed up in uh, that was referred to by someone who did a paper for us. It was conducted here in Minneapolis. Uh, and this lady who, who provided this information said that three quarters of teenagers here thought that police, senior citizens, parents and teachers felt negative about them. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what this lady found out. And um, that kind of thing has a possible um, self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to it. If our reaction is to kids that they are a problem, rather than a resource, rather than someone to invest in, rather than a representation of people who are going to take our places and run this show when we're out of the way. Uh, we are, if we continue to look at it that way, we are in serious trouble. We really need to think about kids as resources. And also, in the way we treat them, we tend in large part to treat their troubles rather than to treat them in terms of prevention of their troubles. In closing these remarks, about which have already turned a little longer than they should, I will read a brief statement on this business of emphasizing preventions rather than cures. We have, we have cures uh, for drugs, we have cures for dropouts, we have cures for people who are irresponsible about sex as young people, for teenage pregnancy. We have all kinds of agencies and efforts to deal with the problem when it's developed. And we don't put enough attention on the situation of the youngster before the problem develops. Hence, this little statement that was given me by a friend who lives in Minneapolis. There was an ancient Cornish custom 
used to test whether a person was insane. The individual was confronted with three elements, a spigot, a bucket, and a ladle. As water flowed from the spigot into the bucket, he was instructed to keep the water from overflowing. No matter how tenaciously and effectively he ladled water from the bucket, keeping it from overflowing, he was judged insane if he failed to turn off the spigot. By what ancient standard, we, by that ancient standard, we behave in a crazy way, picking up the pieces of damaged children at greater and greater cost to society, with more and more dire consequences, rather than curb the supply. What is it in our character, in the way we organize and represent interests in this democratic society, that causes us to treat the consequences of damage far more vigorously than undertakings to prevent it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Harold Howe. Doc Howe, as I gather you're affectionately called. Uh, we quoted you at the beginning of this program as having said in another setting that uh, you were dedicated to making life better for those on the bottom of the pile in our society. And, and what you've said and the way you've said it has uh, communicated that with, with uh, considerable force. And uh, we're glad to, to get to know you and to know what, what's important to you. Let me just remind our radio audience uh, this afternoon that you have been listening the Westminster Town Hall Forum and to our guest speaker today, namely Harold Howe II, speaking on strategic new thinking for children, youth, and families. He was Commissioner of Education under President Johnson for a period of years in the 1960s. He is currently Senior Lecturer on Educational Policy and Administration Emeritus at Harvard Graduate School of Education. We would invite you, sir, to uh, return to the podium if you would. And I've got a question or two uh, to fire at you before the uh, others come from the audience. I think it's uh, always interesting to know uh, something of a person's background. And I noticed in reading about you that your grandfather was General Samuel Chapman Armstrong, who founded the Hampton Institute, the nation's first college for blacks, and who admitted Booker T. Washington as a student. I, and I found that a fascinating history, and I think it ties in with some of your uh, uh, interests in your career. Well, I don't know what I'm supposed to say about that. My grandfather will be delighted that he is uh, getting this attention in Minneapolis. <laughs> uh, uh, he, was, um, he was an interesting man. Um, he was born of uh, missionary parents in Hawaii, and he came to Williams College in Massachusetts um, uh, as a young man in the 1850s. And when the Civil War came along, uh, he got into the military and became uh, one of the people who led a, a regiment of uh, black troops on the northern side in the Civil War. Hmm. Uh, when, um, when the war was over, he joined the Freedman's Bureau, uh, an agency set up to deal with the affairs of the freed slaves. And in, in connection with that, he 
he uh, founded Hampton Institute in Virginia, which was a sort of a trade school in the beginning uh, to teach trades to the freed slaves. Uh, later, it uh, became a regular college, is today a university, uh, is a substantial institution down in Hampton, Virginia. Um, and um, I don't know what else to say about this, except that uh, I don't claim to have inherited any of his virtues, but uh, <laughs> he's, um, he's quite an interesting guy. He was, on, of course, on my mother's side of the family. I don't know anything about the Howes. I think they were uh, connected to General Howe, who won the revolution for the United States. <laughs> in your career, in your career, you have had an interest in uh, black uh, uh, institutions of higher learning, I believe, and I, uh, that's, that's a, that ties in somehow with that history, it would appear to me. Well, when I worked with Ford Foundation, I remember giving $50 million of Henry Ford's money to a bunch of black colleges. Uh -huh. Maybe that's what you're referring to. <laughs> uh, they still want more. <laughs> You spoke of the role of uh, various groups in, in the community for helping with uh, the kinds of issues that are facing uh, young people. Do you have any particular thoughts about the role of, of churches, possibly? Absolutely. Um, and if I hadn't seen my, uh, uh, my watch clicking along and getting beyond the time I was supposed to be talking on the radio, I would have gotten into more detail on this subject. Mm -hmm. um, uh, churches, of course, uh, can be a very important part of the network uh, that, that supports young people and gives them all kinds of opportunities uh, they would not otherwise get. Um, there's a very interesting alliance of the, of the school system in Atlanta, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, with uh, the public school system, with the black churches of that city. Um, uh, they get all kinds of volunteers to come and do tutorial work in the schools uh, for youngsters um, through those churches. They get people who are uh, interested in signing up and being teaching assistants and a variety of other roles in the schools in paid jobs. Um, the churches are watchdogs for the black community over the schools in a very constructive way, but they are indeed advocates for children in situations where children need advocates. And um, I don't see why churches in any other part of the country can't get into this in the same way as long as they don't start teaching the kids to pray their way. Uh, that's unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. uh, so churches will just have to stay out of that. Uh, but they might convert a few sinners by goodwill somehow and get them to pray when they get back to church. Uh. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, there's a question here about the, the effect of the minimum wage on young people. What, what is your feeling about all of that? Um, in the commission I worked with to do this study of, of young people, we had a long debate about the minimum wage and whether we should come out some way on it. And we had a uh, split right through the middle of a bunch of very thoughtful and capable people and decided not to take a position on it. My own position would have been to support increases in the minimum wage. Um, the, um, I, I don't see any point in trying to go into the detailed economic arguments on this subject. Um, so many young people are in what I call dead-end jobs 
that are getting the minimum wage that I think it's worth increasing the minimum wage for their benefit. Um, but there are plenty of others who are more authoritative than I uh, who think that, the, that it would work the other way and that if you push the minimum wage up too much, uh, this type of employment will be cut down by the people who offer the employment. Um, I don't know how to settle that argument, but that's where the argument is. Thank you. Just uh, a note that uh, we do uh, accept questions from the radio audience, and if anyone out there would like to uh, send a question in over the phone, the phone number here at the church is 332-3421, 332-3421. Let me do a little advertising to the radio audience and say that uh, if there are any publications in this arena that they would like to get a hold of, I will leave word with, uh, with uh, Andrea Goldman uh, here at the church who works for the forum about uh, how to do that. Thank you. Next question from the audience. Please elaborate on how places of work can participate in supporting children and families, particularly the bottom 20%. I mentioned just one factor in that regard, the business of, pla of places of work making the lives of workers flexible enough so they can indeed get together with the schools where their kids are. But beyond that, there are many important things that, that, that employers can do. Uh, and in my mind, one of the most important is to uh, try to take advantage of all this high-powered business interest there is in improving the schools, and there's a great deal of it around the country now, and get a little more focused. The direction in which I would like to see it focused is in the direction of helping secondary schools, that is high schools, uh, to build work-study programs jointly with the business world so that Young people are part-time going to school, but also part-time at work in a paid position, uh, relatively low pay, uh, say after the age of 16, and maybe extending this work-study thing on into community colleges so that young people who are getting started on jobs are working in an environment in which they get some hope about the future for their jobs. If you go to McDonald's and work and get your wage, whatever it is, and see nothing but that same job for the future, you, you really aren't very much motivated uh, to try to learn and try to improve yourself so you can get a better job. If you go to a major business that is in some production line or in some service line of activity where you can see people in all kinds of jobs around you and where you can aspire, therefore, to getting better jobs, kids will be much more motivated. Also, uh, there's a very strong record that this kind of thing is working extremely well in other countries. The capital of it, in terms of uh, uh, an interesting model, is in Germany, which, in which about 70% of every age cohort of young people going through secondary school goes into apprenticeship assignments within the business community, although not entirely in the business community, because the government also accepts workers in government agencies as young people at age of 16 who are working and taking courses in school or sometimes right in the agency where 
uh, they are learning things that relate to their work. And I think that kind of planning between employers and public schools could do an immense amount for the youngsters uh, who are dropping out of school. I think it would keep many of them from dropping out, and we haven't got enough of it. There are some corporations in the United States that are indeed doing this in a very adventurous way, but there aren't very many of them. Thank you. Another question from the audience. How do we as citizens encourage elected officials to pass the insanity test and begin to invest in children? You vote for the right guys. <laughs> right. No. Uh, I think, um, to be serious about it, and that, that's not yes. entirely not serious, um, I think that um, we, we need much more ventilation of the success of some of the programs we have. Uh, there is a, a sort of superficial level of criticism of government programs that is caught on, uh, that is popular, and that is wrong. It is called throwing money at people. And we are not stupidly throwing money at people in the Head Start program. We are not doing it in Chapter 1 of the Elementary Secondary Education Act. We are not doing it with the Job Corps. We are not doing it with the Joint Training Partnership Act. We are not doing it in the WIC program, the Women's and Infants Care program for all sorts of health arrangements. And all of those programs are powerfully underfunded. And I think it's important uh, to let politicians know that you know that those enterprises hold lots of hope for young people and that you're for them and that you're willing to pay for them. Uh, and that's going to have to be your own decision. I can't tell you you're willing to pay for them. But uh, I think um, there are hazards you face in the future if you are unwilling to pay for them. Uh, the economist at Harvard, uh, John Galbraith, more or less well-known around the countryside, um, wrote a very interesting column the other day in which he argued um, that this growing poverty among the young uh, was going to feed on itself that more poor families would be bringing up more poor kids, creating an underclass growing in size which could someday destroy the social compact we all live with. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think he's saying that's going to happen tomorrow, but I think he was trying to say in no uncertain terms that the United States is headed in that direction and it would be a good thing to think about it. Mm -hmm. Could you say a few more words regarding youth services connection to reviewing youth as resources and youth services connection to school reform? The, the youth service activities that are going on around the country are really legion. Uh, some years ago, there was a limited amount of this. The California Conservation Corps is one of the best known of the early enterprises. Now, some 15 or 20 states have youth corps of various kinds, and a whole variety of cities have them, and more cities are getting them. Uh, I've visited a number of these in San Francisco, in New York, in Philadelphia. 
they, they're all different from each other. Some are residential enterprises. Some are things that youngsters come to by the day. Uh, frequently, they are youngsters who have dropped out of school or are in these youth corps who are getting reestablished in some kind of a routine that may eventually lead them back into a job. And then what's going on in schools is that schools are beginning to require youth service uh, as a graduation requirement in some schools. Uh, there are school districts that are saying uh, you have to do service in your community of some kind on a voluntary basis, unpaid, uh, to help with the affairs of the community as a part of your membership in this school. Um, I'm a little touchy on the subject of required voluntarism, uh, <laughs> but not entirely. <laughs> and uh, um, I think that, um, that the idea of learning early um, that you have an obligation to the people around you and that you can help with their needs and their problems through your voluntary activity is an important thing for all of us to learn. Uh, people are writing books these days uh, which suggest that maybe this country in its high esteem for individualism has lost some of that feeling of caring for others. Um, you read Habits of the Heart. That's an interesting book. Robert Bella, a sociologist on the West Coast, has written a, a book which suggests, through a lot of research his graduate students did, among American middle-class people, that we don't love our neighbor as much as we once did. And maybe we ought to worry about it a little. Uh, these youth service things uh, reach into those realms, I think rather nicely, and they, and they do practical good things. The kids in the San Francisco Youth Corps are building a theater down in the wharfs where I once left the United States to go to the Pacific for World War II. These old wharfs are sitting there doing nothing, and there are these kids building a theater uh, to be used there. Um, all kinds of, of uh, environmental work is done by young people in youth corps. I saw the young people in the New York City Youth Corps uh, working in a special facility for older people who come there by the day. These are older people who have enough control of themselves so they can live without being in an institution, but they need some place to go for the day. And here were youngsters in the New York City Youth Corps making their day worthwhile. They were divided into categories. Some could not even feed themselves, the youngsters were feeding them. Some wanted to learn to play chess, the youngsters were teaching them. There, there are all kinds of things that young people can do that contribute to society. And uh, I think uh, it's a good idea to push it. Good. Uh, from the radio audience, they, the question is raised, can you give out the address for available information over the air? Do you happen to have that in your head, or should we? Write to the William T. Grant Foundation, 1001 Connecticut Avenue, 1001 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C., 20036. I think we should applaud him for that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I forget Thank my name every once in a while. <laughs>
Um, a question that came in through the uh, uh, over the radio or over uh, t uh, from the radio audience: What is your opinion of competency-based education versus age-based education? Is that well, I think what that is directed at is that uh, you might advance in school uh, on the basis of what you know and can do uh, rather than on the basis of you happen to get a year older. Mm -hmm. That's what it sounds okay. like to me okay. anyway. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a pretty good idea. Uh, but I guess um, I ought to say at the same time that uh, that it seems to me that that makes particular sense in the first three or four years of school. And uh, I believe in having a non-graded school in the first three or four years of school. Hmm. Simply a place where kids go and they, they gradually begin to develop the confidence and the socialization and the background and the capacity to deal with other people that allows them to be organized learners and they begin to be organized learners. And that process takes different at a takes place at a different rate in different kids depending on their backgrounds. And when kids have had difficult families or no families or ineffective families, uh, they'll need longer. And to put them in a situation that says, we're holding you back, it effect, in effect says to the kid, you're no good. You're different from these other people. You can't do it. We're holding you back. It's a negative thing. Mm -hmm. And the competency-based approach, when pr properly run in that sort of a circumstance, allows kids to move ahead at any time of year, to be with groups who are differing in age, and really makes a lot of sense in human terms. Uh, so uh, I think educators need to look at that. Another question from this audience. Why don't secondary schools teach prospective parents about the opportunities, responsibilities, and effective methods, uh, methods of parenting. Wouldn't this be turning off the spigot? Uh, that's a great idea, and it's going on. Not everywhere, but it's going on. Um, I was telling some people yesterday that the state of Missouri, I know, tried out a, um, a parenting program in secondary schools, uh, which uh, they worked on for two years to get youngsters informed about the obligations of being good parents. And having tried it out for two years, they have now offered the, uh, all the school districts in the state to pay for the cost of that program if they wish to adopt it. They haven't required it to be adopted, but a very large number of school districts in Missouri have done that. Um, there are other kinds of things going on in other states, and I'm not fully informed about it. There may well be some things going on here in that realm. There ought to be. And, uh, the only thing I'd say about it is that there are a lot of kids out of school who also need the treatment, mm -hmm. and you have to set it up so you can allow for that. Uh, perhaps this is a very big issue to introduce quite so late in our program, but I have, we have noted that you have said that uh, the de desegregation of public schools is the most vexing problem of your career. Uh, where, where do you think we are on that issue uh, just now? Desegregation of schools is a slow game. and. Uh, uh, I found myself uh, at the at being the point man in it when I worked for President Johnson in Washington because we had the coincidence that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed saying no federal money uh, can go to anyone who is uh, discriminating on the basis of race. 
And next year, we had the Elementary Secondary Education Act passed, uh, which said, here's a whole lot of money to give to the schools of the country. So we had to decide who was discriminating on the basis of race and who was not. And um, of course, the Brown decision had said back in 1954, segregation constitutes discrimination. Well, you put all those things together and you have a little stew that's hard to deal with. And in uh, trying to deal with that, I became a, a very unpopular person because I insisted that uh, particularly southern states that had still had segregated schools couldn't have any money. And their governors would all complain uh, to uh, President Johnson that this terrible man was doing terrible things. I have a little plaque on my wall in Harvard uh, which is a resolution of the Congress to have me fired. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was referred to the Rules Committee and uh, nothing ever happened. Uh, that was because Johnson backed me up. He was a pretty good guy in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of yours, namely Dr. Benjamin Payton, president of Tuskegee University, has said of you, Harold Howe is able to be intense about issues and yet relaxed. There's always a laugh in the back of his voice, yet the man is tough as nails. We think we've met that man, and we're glad. <laughs> Thank you.